0: Our scripture text this morning is found in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away In the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So, we're going to continue our series this morning on being a Christian in the world, and this morning we're going to tackle the the topic of uh, the witness of singleness and marriage, and I'm going to try to make the case that the church is greater than both, and that's what really gives us the the foundation and what we should anchor our understanding of singleness and marriage in. Now, it's no small task to address the issues of singleness and marriage. Um, There's many, many things to say. There's many, many qualifications, Um, so I appreciate your grace this morning, and I think that um, what I hope to come away with is just a kind of a refreshed understanding of what singleness is and how God views that, and a refreshed understanding of marriage as well and how God views that, and then um, even a refreshed sense of what the church is and how God views that and how we understand all three of these things and how they work together together in our lives together so that we would be a Christian witness in this world to these things. So with that, let me pray and we can get to work. Father in heaven, I just ask for your grace this morning. I ask for your grace uh, upon all of us, Lord, as your people, as your bride. We are the wife of the Lamb. What a reality that is. And I do pray, Lord, that you would Um, give us right thinking about singleness. I pray that you would give us right thinking about marriage. We pray that you would give us right thinking about your church, Lord. Help us to understand these things in in light of how you understand them, Lord. And I pray that you would comfort us, comfort your people, Lord God, where we need comforting and, um, and confirm us, Lord God, in our right thinking. And I pray that you would confront us, Lord God, where we need confrontation in our thinking and our understanding of these things. So, Father, we give this to you. I pray for your Holy Spirit not only to be active in me as I preach and communicate and teach on these things, Lord, but I also pray for your Holy Spirit to be active among all of your people this morning as we listen and as we engage in these things. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, the Supreme Court of the United States of America recently voted to legalize gay marriage in all 50 states of the nation. And what I really want to enjoy, uh, uh, draw attention to is the rationale behind it. Justice Kennedy wrote that marriage, quote-unquote, embodies the highest ideals of love. And then he went on to say that singles who cannot marry, who would be prohibited, and in this case he's talking about homosexuals, who would be prohibited from being married are condemned, quote-unquote, condemned to a life of loneliness. So that's kind of the rationale. And this is kind of the cultural kind of way of thinking that permeates our society, our culture. I think it's even seeping into the church. Make no mistake that this kind of thinking doesn't just affect those who are struggling with homosexuality. It affects all single people. And I would argue that it doesn't just affect single people, but it affects married people as well that domino falls. And then, I think, by extension, it also affects the church and how we understand ourselves as the church. Now, there's at least two really faulty assumptions in this kind of way of thinking, that the highest ideals of love are embodied in marriage, and that um, if you are prohibited from being married or if you are single and consigned to a life of singleness, that you're condemned to a life of loneliness. There's two faulty assumptions there. Number one, I think it it assumes that singleness is a problem. And that only marriage can fix it. So in other words, our culture's view of marriage is that it's a problem fixer. So I think that's a faulty assumption. And number two, it assumes that marriage actually embodies the highest ideals of love. Now, at first glance, especially in a church like this, I know for myself, that might seem legit, actually. Well, doesn't it embody the highest ideals of love? And I think I'm going to argue that Scripture doesn't support this and that if we as Christians subscribe to that line of thinking, that I think it leads both married and singles to some problems. Number one if you're single and you subscribe to the idea that marriage is the highest and embodies the highest ideals of love, then it will leave you feeling like you're missing out if you're not married. And in the case of somebody that's struggling with homosexuality, it will seem incredibly unfair, even hateful as it's been charged, that they would withhold that kind of experience and that kind of accessibility to marriage, which is the highest ideal of love. Right? And in marriage marriage will be in trouble with this as well because marriage will be idolized, I think. And you'll be deceived into thinking that you are fulfilled or that you are complete, quote-unquote, or that you should be complete because you're married and you are, after all, in the embodiment of the highest institution of love or the highest ideals of love. So it will leave you, I think, if as a married person, if you're approaching marriage for that purpose, A little bit disillusioned. Now at the core, when marriage is idolized as embodying the highest ideals of love, then singles and marrieds, I think we'll be guilty of essentially the same thing. And that is that you'll look to marriage to meet your needs to essentially complete you. Maybe some of you guys will remember the movie long ago, Jerry Maguire. And that line in there where the gal finds love, you complete me. And it's the mushy-gushy romantic kind of stuff that sells 20 million copies and we just buy it. But it's not true. That is not the purpose of marriage. And I would argue, again, that marriage does not embody the highest ideals of love. And if not, then what does? We're going to go Sunday school answer on this one. God does. Through his love, Jesus, through his his son, Jesus Christ. God embodies the highest ideals of love through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Make no mistake about this, brothers and sisters. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. God is love. All love flows from God. He is the source. He is the fountainhead of all love. Genesis one twenty seven says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In other words, before you were created for another person, you were created by God and for God. To be in a relationship with God. And if anyone completes you and fulfills you, it is Jesus. The love of Jesus is higher and wider and deeper than your mind could ever imagine. It is more profound than your heart can fully take in. It is more pure and more perfect. It is the only thing that is perfect. It is the only thing that is pure. It is the only love that is perfectly pure and perfectly perfect. And no other than any other human being could ever provide for you. God is love. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You were made by God, for God, to be filled with the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. God is the source of love, and in him, a human being can come to experience the highest ideal of love and forgiveness and acceptance. So that's one of the key foundations here that I want to promote to you guys and, and offer to you, that God is the one Whom love flows from. He is the source of love. He is the fountainhead of love. And that he is the one who completes us and fulfills us. Now I want to look at marriage, earthly marriage. And I want to look at singleness then in light of this. So we'll start with earthly marriage. What role does it have to play? Where does it fit into this whole scope? And I would say that earthly marriage is a witness of the gospel. And it is a witness of the gospel by being a witness to the greater reality of the heavenly marriage that the bride of Christ is now engaged in. All redeemed people are now a part of the bride of Christ that are awaiting our final consummation of that marriage union with Christ. So marriage, earthly marriage is a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it witnesses to something greater, namely the heavenly marriage, That if you are redeemed, you are a part of. So the Bible begins on a note. This is amazing to me. The Bible begins on a note of marriage, and it ends on a note of marriage. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that Adam and Eve were created, and that each of them were to come together in the union of marriage, and they were to do so in part to fulfill their mission. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of the living God. In other words, they were called to make disciples. And it had to, hap- it had to happen through procreation there. It just had to happen that way. Right? So in other words, they were, they were joined together and in part, they were created or assigned with the task of building the church. How would the people of God come into being if they weren't Procreated. And then interestingly, the end of the Bible ends with a note of marriage, as Matt read for us. In Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible close on a note of marriage. But this time, there's a little bit of a difference. It isn't marriage between a husband and wife, as we know it. It is the marriage between the bride of Christ, who is the church, the redeemed people who have their faith in Jesus. Is the marriage between the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ, and Jesus Himself, the groom. That's the progression of marriage throughout the Bible, Revelation 21 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Did you see the the marriage talk there? There's a marriage consummation coming. There's a progression that God fills our understanding of what marriage is actually about. And it ultimately is about the bride of Christ, the church, who is going to be unified with Jesus, our groom. So what happened along the way was that God made mankind to live in relationship with God, but through sin, a rebellion to God, this relationship between God and man was severed. And to fix the problem between God and man, God the Father sent Jesus, the God-man, to reconcile the relationship between God and man. You see, our deepest issue is that we were created for a relationship with God. And that is what the Bible addresses. And this is how the Bible ends. It ends on a note of saying, Yes, the relationship of God and man is going to be restored. And it's restored through Jesus who comes to live in the place of sinners. A righteous life in the place of sinners that we could never live. And to die in our place with a death that we would otherwise have to pay for ourselves. So here's a quote from Christopher Yuan. He says, In actuality, marriage is a mystery and a reflection of, of a greater reality. It's a reflection of a greater reality, namely Christ and his love for the church and how the church submits to that. Truly, high, the highest ideal of love is Christ's love for his bride, the church. In Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21, marriage is analogous to Christ's redemption. The marriage consummation between the bride, which are redeemed sinners, and the groom, which is Christ, shows that all redeemed people, all redeemed people are married to Christ. Only in Christ can anyone experience the full definition of love and acceptance. As important as earthly marriage and family are, they are both fleetingly temporary while Christ and the family of God, the church, are wondrously eternal. So marriage is indeed a wonderful gift of God and its highest meaning, I think it's, it is this wonderful gift of God because of its highest meaning is in the way that it witnesses to the church. It witnesses to the love that Christ has for his people, and the way that his people respond to him. So if what Christopher Yuan says is right, that, the only, that only in Christ we can experience the full definition of love and acceptance, then earthly marriage won't actually fix your deepest needs. Because... Our deepest needs have to do with being reconciled to God. And marriage is a witness of how Christ loves his church and how his church submits. It is a giving relationship, not a taking relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're single and you're hearing this, I do want to point this out, that the desire to be married, married, if that is your desire, is a God-given thing. That's not a bad thing. This is a good thing. And I don't know what your time frame is. I don't know how long God would have you be single. I really don't. It might be a year. It might be ten. Who knows? But I do know this. What I'm saying is don't feel bad for yourself for wanting to be married. I think that's a good desire. The Bible affirms that. But what I am saying is don't desire marriage for the wrong reasons. If you think that it will complete you, it won't. Only Jesus will. Thus, if you enter marriage or you are in marriage and you are not satisfied in the love of Christ, your marriage cannot become what it is truly designed for. There is no way that a husband can witness to the sacrificial love of Christ if you are looking to your wife to complete you. And likewise for wives, you'll never be able to surrender to your husband as imperfect as he is if you are truly looking to him to complete you. And to satisfy your desire or need for affirmation or validate your worth. In both cases, this will hurt you. This will leave you disillusioned. This will leave you perhaps devastated. Maybe even domineering. If Christ isn't your all in all in marriage, then it can't function in the way that it's truly designed to function as a reflection of the greater reality of Christ's redemptive love for his people. Marriage is a witness to the gospel, the good news of salvation, where a husband reflects the love of Christ and his redemption for God's people, and the woman, the wife, reflects the response of submission to the church, of the church to the Savior. And only when you are satisfied in Christ... Can you be this witness to the greater realities of the gospel? Let me address singleness now. So marriage is a witness to the gospel. What about singleness? Is that just the alternate plan? Is that just class B Christianity? Marriage is a witness to the gospel. I'm going to argue that singleness is a witness to the gospel. It's a profound witness to the gospel. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to flesh out two ways. Two ways that singleness is a witness to the gospel. But before I say that, I want to say this. Singleness is designed. Singleness is a design of God. God. It's not the leftovers, oh, what do we do now with this? Couldn't match that person up with anybody. Plan B, scratch the head. No, it's a design. God intends for it. It's a design. And it is a gift. So singleness is designed, and it is a gift of God. To display the gospel in ways that perhaps a married person couldn't do as well. So number one way that singleness testifies or witnesses to the gospel. Singleness displays the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ. That's the first one I'm going to lay out for you. Singleness displays the Christian's ultimate identity with Christ. The world says that you are not complete until you have a husband or wife. However, the gospel reminds us that this is not true. In Christ, and only in Christ, we are complete. You are complete regardless of whether or not you're married. In the words of Christopher Yuan again, only in Christ can anyone experience the full definition of love and acceptance. Christ satisfies us with a sufficient love that supersedes what any spouse will ever be able to deliver you. So singleness becomes a witness To the world and to the church. Brothers and sisters, see this. Singleness is a witness to the world around us. Yes, but it's also a witness in here to Christians. And what is it a witness to? That I think it says this. It says that having a spouse actually isn't necessary But Christ is necessary. That our identity is rooted in Jesus. In him, a person could have anything that they would ever want or need. Married people, I think, are limited in their ability to portray this. And the reality is, this is true for all of us whether you're married or not, that our identity is ultimately and not in the fact that, yes, we're married or not, but that Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our satisfier. Jesus is the one who holds claim on who I am, not any kind of worldly status. So, singleness displays the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ. And number two... And I'm really excited about this one. Singleness witnesses to the Christian's eternal identification with the church. This is the words of David Platt. I'll say that again. Singleness witnesses to the Christian's eternal identification with the church. What does that mean? Okay, so Genesis 2.18 says that it's not good for man to be alone. So you could go to there and say, you see, I need to be married because it's not good for man to be alone. That was in the context of marriage, yes. But I think that this is one piece of the, the equation, and I think if we look at the whole picture that God has painted for us throughout the entirety of Scripture, we come to see that God has provided the church that there's a progression of what marriage is really all about and the church comes into view and the church actually is the eternal view. So God has provided the church so that no man or woman must be alone. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and you are a part of the family of God. So realize this, that if you are in Christ, you're a part of the family of God, and you have the opportunity to be loved and to love in the deepest way possible. I think this stretches our faith a little bit, because we hear these theological assertions But I wonder if sometimes, I know I think this, I wonder if sometimes we think, yeah, but I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if the church actually is the place that can really meet my needs the way a spouse could. So perhaps our view of the church is really being challenged here. And I'm about... Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it up a notch here. I'm going to say something that's really going to challenge us, I think. This challenged me, so I'm just going to assume that it's going to challenge all of us. All right? In, the, in light of history consummating with marriage between Christ and his wife, the church, so think about that. History culminates in the marriage between Christ and the church. All right? So in light of that, This means that the relationships that we have with our eternal family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are actually designed to be more precious and more permanent than even our physical relationship that we have with our spouse. Does that challenge our faith? I know it does for me. That in light of the fact that The consummation of history, redemptive history, is going to be the marriage between the bride and Christ, the church and Christ, that what God has in mind for his people, the church, is actually designed to be as precious and even more permanent than what you have with your physical spouse. One last time from Christopher Yuan. The marriage consummation between the bride, redeemed sinners, and the groom, Christ, shows that all redeemed people are married to Christ. As important as earthly marriage and family are, they are both fleetingly temporary, while Christ and the family of God, the church, are wondrously eternal. So the reality is, let me bring this home, Christians' eternal identification with the church, all Christians' ultimately identify with the church. The reality is that singleness points us to our eternal dwelling with Christ on the new earth and it displays how we will relate to each other throughout eternity. You notice that the love of Christ is experienced among believers. Did you guys notice that? In Paul's prayer, he says that, I pray that you will be filled with the Spirit so that you can comprehend with all the saints. That means that we perceive, we receive, we experience the love of Christ in the context of the church. Paul prays that we would experience the love of Christ among other believers, the church. And this describes what we will do into eternity where there won't be any marriage, you see, Because marriage will be consummate in our relationship to Christ. So therefore, the point that I'm making here is all of us are going to be single when we get to heaven. We will relate how we were meant to relate to God as singles. And now singleness has that to say about what you are as a Christian So singleness testifies to the reality that all of us are heading towards singleness, which is actually marriage to Christ. Isn't that amazing? So both marriage is good, a good gift from God that he has given to his people, and singleness is a good gift that God has given to his people And because it is a testimony to the entirety of the body of Christ, I think we all need to hear this. I think we all need to understand how we think about singleness, how we think about marriage, that we have right thinking about these things. And I hope that we see that the church and what God is making his future people really is what anchors both of the way that we understand singleness and marriage. So, here's some concluding thoughts, and I'll address single people first. So, single people, please listen up. Don't buy the lie that marriage is the highest ideal of love, or that being single means that you are condemned to a life of single or of loneliness. Don't buy that lie. And don't buy the lie either that marriage is going to fix your problems. Because if you get with any married person in here, I'm sure that they'll be able to tell you that, if anything, your problems are going to increase in some ways. Now, there is... Okay, we struck a nerve. See, I told you. Now, okay, this is where it gets qualification city here. I also do want to say that there are wonderful needs that are met legitimate needs that are met through marriage, which is why desiring it is not a sin. It's a good thing. However, let me just stress again, desire it for the right reasons. And you know what? That applies to married people too, doesn't it? Even if you're married right now, that doesn't mean that you don't stop desiring marriage for one purpose or another. If you're married, are you desiring marriage for the right reasons? Are you looking to get from it what you ought to be getting from it? Or maybe another way to think about it is, are you giving to it what you ought to be giving to it? So that applies to everybody here, doesn't it? And don't buy the lie, singles, that masculinity or femininity is incomplete if you never exercise it in marriage or procreation. That's an easy one to slip on. But if that were true then we could we would have to stop drawing implications of masculinity from Jesus because he was never married. And he was he is the most perfect and complete picture of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a human being. And that completeness involves him not ever being married. That's amazing. Although he did have his eyes set on a marriage, and that is you. So the implication of that is, may we all have our eyes set on him. Second, don't forget that you're bearing witness to the gospel, singles. You are bearing witness to the gospel, to the world and also to the church, that our identity is in Christ and that we eternally identify with the church. So therefore, you have, you have a significant ministry in the life of this church. You have a significant ministry in the life of the body of Christ. Please understand that. That you are pointing to Christ in key ways that we all need to see. And then another thing I want to say to you is, please consider this. Be fully devoted to the church. You have wonderful freedom to do so much good in, your, in our mission to make disciples. You will find that if you get married and you have kids, you will be tied down. Not only just physically and financially, but also in your heart. I can't go to a different country. I've got kids to think about. I can't do that mission trip. I've got kids to think about. You'll be limited in so many different ways. And this is why the Bible says to be single is actually a gift of God for ministry, for for full devotion to Christ. There are so many awesome things you can do with your singleness. Oh, I hope you see that. Don't settle. I'm begging you. Don't settle for the world's claim on your life that you should live for pleasure. There is so much of that message being sent to single people that really, and married too, all of us, that you should live for your pleasure. And there's so much license to do that. You should live for your pleasure. Live for a holy passion to pursue Christ, to know Him, to be filled up completely with Him. He will meet your needs. He will satisfy you more than the earthly pleasures of this world. Don't live for leisure, please. I'm begging you, live for the glory of Christ and use your singleness, every last drop of it, to honor Christ and further the church and advance the church. There is so much need, if you could just see it, There are so many ways you can meet needs in this church. And we need you. I don't know how long God might call you to be single, but don't waste it by kicking and screaming against his plan or his design. Learn to trust God, that he is always good and that he is always for you in favor of you. And also remember that he doesn't withhold any good things from those who walk uprightly. Remember that spiritual growth, true spiritual growth, happens when you surrender a part of your life to him in obedience. This is where you grow when you surrender in obedience. And then remember this too, that if you can learn to love a church that is imperfect and By the way, every church that you go to is going to be imperfect, right? If you can learn to love a church that is imperfect, this is probably, if you're really looking to get married, if you're looking for practice to get married, learning to love an imperfect church, even though it may not provide everything that you want it to provide for you, but learning to love this imperfect church is great practice for learning to love an imperfect spouse. Because I can guarantee you, after the honeymoon and all of the wedding plans and everything, imperfection is going to come knocking on your door. So give yourself to Jesus and to his people and see that he can provide you with everything that you want or need. And then to married people, I want to challenge us in our thinking Do we reinforce the notion that singleness is class B Christianity? When are you going to get married? I wonder what's wrong with them. Why can't they find a spouse? I don't know. Maybe God wants them to be single. Maybe that's a design and maybe we should celebrate that as a church. Find ways to incorporate them. I think about community groups. Can single people and married people with kids coexist in a community group? Well, we don't have anything in common. Well, maybe we can learn to find things in common and maybe we can learn to put all of our stuff aside and say, tell me about you. Right? So I invite that. I challenge us. Maybe we can do a better job of integrating these things that don't go together we love to hang around with people that are just like us don't we and there's a lot of good practical reasons for that but you know what this kind of smacks on what Jesus says if you love those who love you what good is that everybody likes to be around people just like them everybody does right is that really showing the love of Christ can we do better maybe we can do better Maybe we can learn to love people who aren't just like us, who aren't just in the same category of life as us. Maybe we can learn to love and extend, to get beyond ourselves, to say, hey, you know what? You have nothing in common for me. You have nothing to offer me. But I want to get to know you and I want to minister to you. And maybe we will find out that actually they do have more to offer us than we originally thought. Just a challenge. Just a challenge. And maybe, as a last point, and I guess this applies to all of us, we do hold that marriage marriage, is a sacred thing. And that's a good thing, because it is a sacred thing. But in light of what I was saying about the church, that God has designed the church, who, people who are united by the Spirit, to be as precious and even more permanent than our physical relationship to our spouse— I wonder, this is the way it landed on me, I wonder if I elevate marriage to a level of sacredness and the church I don't hold nearly as sacred. That's just a fly-by, whatever. Easy come, easy go with the church. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe I need to elevate the sacredness that I think about the church in. Is that possible? If, after all, we're all going to spend eternity in glory with one another in singleness, maybe we ought to elevate the sacredness by which we understand the church, his bride, with. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We submit all of these things to you, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, and that you would minister to each and every single one of us, Lord. I pray that, again, you would confirm us where we are doing well. I pray that you would confront us, Lord, where we need growth. And we do admit, Lord, that there are ways that we need growth, and sometimes we're not even sure of those ways. So I pray that you would pinpoint that in us, Lord. And in the end, Lord, I do, I just simply want to pray that, Lord Jesus, you would be our satisfaction, that we would find in you our all in all, Lord, that you would meet our deepest needs and that we would really come to believe as a people that you are the only thing that's necessary in our lives. So I praise you and I give you thanks and I just ask that you would do your will and your work now. In Jesus' name, amen.